Entrepreneurs Over 40, Episode 70, with Matthew Stibb of Articulate Marketing, talking about how he captures ideas. I have a Notion page or group of pages of ideas of things that I would like to do, games I would like to make, projects I would like to run. And I'm very diligent about writing that stuff down and filing it away. It relieves me of the psychological pressure of having to remember it all. It relieves me of the guilt burden of, I had that brilliant idea, but I didn't do anything with it. I have 99 ideas that I don't act on and one idea that I do. And I don't want to carry around those 99 ideas. Writing them down allows them to be, exist in my life. They're like seeds in a dark room. I take them out and they might germinate. I haven't killed them. I haven't lost them. They haven't gone anywhere, but they just haven't come to. And sometimes I go back and look at them and I go, actually, now the time has come for that idea. You're listening to Entrepreneurs Over 40, the show for somewhat mature entrepreneurs and side hustlers. And now your host, Greg Mills. Our guest today is a serial entrepreneur, marketing maven, writer, pilot, and wine enthusiast, but not necessarily in that order. He created marketing strategies, content, and campaigns for clients, including Microsoft, Google, LinkedIn, and HP, and contributed to Wired, Forbes, and Popular Science. Currently, he is CEO at Articulate Marketing, a UK marketing agency specializing in the technology sector. Also, his geek credentials are strong. Previously, he was founder and CEO at Intelligent Games, a 70-person computer games company, where he designed games for Lego and produced two games based on Dune. He also has his commercial pilot's license and an advanced wine diploma. At some point in the previous millennium, he studied history at Oxford University. These days, he blogs about modern management at geekboss.com, about marketing at ArticulateMarketing.com and wine at VenCarta.com. Without further ado, Matthew Stibb. Hey, Greg, thank you so much for having me on the show. And thank you for the very generous and fulsome introduction. (laughs) Of all those things, the thing I'm, I'm most proud of is the wine qualification, which sounds like the thing that was the easiest and most fun to do, but it was the hardest exam I ever did in my life. Now, can you take a few moments and fill in the gaps from that intro and bring us up to speed with what's going on in your world today? Sure. So I run Articulate Marketing. That's my day job. That's the thing I spend most of my time doing and mostly with great pleasure and happiness. We are a B2B technology marketing agency. So we help tech companies with websites, with copywriting, with strategy, with positioning, branding, and so on. And we're a HubSpot Diamond partner. So we also do quite a lot of technology implementation and marketing automation. So that's my world mostly. I still geek out quite a lot on games and Lego. I've got my, I don't know if this is going out on video, I'm just pivoting my camera to show my shelf of Lego models that I've built. And then if I pivot the camera the other way, there is my collection of vintage computers. Well, you can't see all of them, but so yeah, I'm, I still enjoy playing games, though I don't have much time for it. I don't. I would love to make games, but I don't have time to do that either. What am I thinking about from a management and business and entrepreneurial perspective? The, there are a few issues on my plate. 
things that are occupying my thoughts. One is sales management and sales growth and really bringing some predictability and scalability to that part of the business is a really interesting challenge. I'm not a, I'm a pretty good consultative salesperson by accident, but I'm not a particularly well-trained sales manager. So I'm working through that. Another thing that I'm thinking about a lot at the moment is my own communication and leadership style. As the business has grown, I've moved from, we have moved from being, how can I put it, heroic individual leadership from me trying to be the boss and be in charge of everything and involved in everything, which is fine if you have five people. It's okay if you're 10. doesn't work if you're 20 and it will never work if you're 50 people. So I'm flexing to what I would call over the last year, a more sort of professional collegiate management model with a board a team of senior leaders who are responsible for their departments and their functions. That's challenging and exciting for them, but it's a big change for me. It's a change I went through before in my own biz, old business, but it's something that requires. So I'm thinking about how do I flex my leadership, my management style, my communication style to suit that growing business and push us through those growing pains. So that's exciting. And then on top of all of that, I'm uh, trying to do the fun stuff of my job. So drum up business, talk to people, build thought leadership, communicate. And I still hold the reins on IT at the company. So I'm also first line, second line and third line IT technical support. So I have quite a lot of that stuff to do as well. Anyway, so those are the things that run a business and then worry about sales, worry about management and worry about IT. That's my life. You are insane. <laughs> The IT stuff, I think that would be the first thing I would outsource or hand off to somebody else. I The first thing I outsourced was finance. I'm like, I'm techie, but I'm not numerate. Um, so I have a really good accountant and I've we have a really good CFO now as well. And the other thing I'm not good at and I'm really happy to hand off is HR. We have a chief happiness officer and we have an outsourced HR consultancy to do all of that stuff. Uh, yeah. The reason I can't quite let go of the IT is I'm really just enjoy it a bit too much. Okay. It, lots of my job has very open-ended outcomes and it's all about influencing other people and getting things done through teams and projects and collaboration. And that's in interesting and it's the ball game that I'm in. IT, I can go and do it and then it's done and it's just me and I can exercise mastery and learn things and solve problems. I've just been, I, this is a terrible thing so to admit because I've got so many important roles and jobs to do as the CEO. But the thing I've been really pleased with in the last week is I'm, I moved all of our domain names from two other domain name hosts to a, a third one, put in DNS sec for all of them, put in some anonymized contact details so people can't trace me, put in some a DMARC policy to prevent email spoofing and it's basically just tightened up our domain and all and then the whole thing is protected by two-factor authentication and account control and it's like i've got all my domain names lined up and protected and secure and done just nice it's just that makes me really happy and any one of my colleagues listening to that will recognize the geek joy that i have in it and go matthew why the hell are you doing that you've got other stuff i need you to do for me <laughs> Did you come from an entrepreneurial background or did anybody in your family while you're growing up have a business of their own or was it just you? Yeah, my parents, both entrepreneurs, my grandparents, although they retired the day I was born, 
coincidentally. So I never saw them working, but they had been for most of their adult lives hoteliers in the, in, in the UK. My parents also in the sort of hospitality business, different kinds over the years, restaurants and hotels and coffee shops and things. So yes, I grew up in that milieu of people it didn't seem unusual at all to run your own business. Yeah. And I think that, I think that's a bit of a blessing actually. I think because a lot of people have, a lot of people would like to run their own business, but have fear and anxiety about it. And it just, it was normal. That was like, oh, yeah. Somebody once said about being an entrepreneur, everybody wants to go to heaven, but nobody wants to die. <laughs> I think that's some, there's something about that, that. And I never had that fear. Okay. Growing up, what did you want to do? <laughs> it's funny. The second time I've been asked that question recently, I remember telling one of my mother's friends as he was driving me and some friends back from school. I was, I must have been, I don't know, 11 or 12. I said, on weekdays, I want to be an astronaut. And then on weekends, I want to run a hotel. <laughs> I, I had it all mapped out. I don't quite know how I was going to do the flight from Houston back to Devon to run my hotel on weekends, maybe in my spaceship. But that's that. Yeah. I, unfortunately, I never quite got to be an astronaut. I'm not technical enough, too old and decrepit now. And I, I never went into the hospitality business. And I think watching my mother, particularly, and my parents work like crazy in their I would never want to be a hotelier or a restaurateur now. That's the hardest gig in the world. So, but so, hey, I got into marketing and computer games instead. So let's talk about that. How did you get into game design with intelligent games? Well, when I was 17, 18 at school, I used to play a lot of board games and I really enjoyed that very much. And I thought it would be fun to design one. And I thought I could design a board game that I could sell as a board game, not really understanding that world that was a dying market. Actually coming back now, board games, but what mm. wasn't then. And also I was hugely into computers. I had a Sinclair Spectrum and a BBC Micro, and these were coeval with Apple IIs and TRS-80. So it was that sort of generation in the 80s. And so the two ideas came together, historical board games, computers. And I designed a couple of games in the gap year between finishing school and going to university. And I was lucky enough to sell them. And then I ended up programming one and working with the pro a programmer and a graphic designer to implement the other. So these two games basically were in my life while I was doing my degree. And then they came out in my second year and my third year. Okay. One was a game called Imperium, and it was published by Electronic Arts on the Atari ST Amiga and PC. Remember those? <laughs> yes. And in it, you played the emperor of a space empire, and it was all graphics with planets and stars, and you could build spaceships and space fleets and things. Very ably coded by Nick Wilson and designed by me and published by EA. And the other game I worked on was Sank Without a Trace, unfortunately, a Vietnam war game simulating the sort of the history of the Vietnam War and the American involvement there. And you got to make presidential decisions and then you got to make strategic battlefield decisions. So you broadly got to play Johnson, Nixon and Westmoreland, a little bit Creighton Abrams, I suppose, at the end. It wasn't the world's greatest game. I programmed it, which is probably why it wasn't the world's greatest game. But it came out in my final year and I was finishing my degree in code fixing bugs at the same time. So when, the, when, my, when I finished my university career, when I finished, finished my university degree, I had a choice of what I wanted to do, jobs. 
And I decided to go set up a business to make these computer games, to do more of them. And so that became Intelligent Games. And I graduated in 1991. And for the next nine, 10 years, I was doing that professionally. And the company grew and we did all, we did Lego games and we did World Cup soccer. We did uh, the Dune games, all kinds of different things. And, and it went from being a hobby to being something quite serious and grown up by the end. What were your key takeaways from founding the company and eventually selling it? Yeah. When I left, when I sold the business and I went and walked out of the door and I sat in my car and tried to figure out what I had two very strong feelings. One is I never want to have another office again in my life. It, for some reason, it just seemed like a dead weight and a burden. And the other, the other rule I made for myself was I'm never going to have another employee again. Well, I still don't have an office, but I do have employees. So I broke one of the rules. So I think that was, those were two obvious lessons. I think reflecting very hard on that whole experience, I think give up when it's not fun anymore or find a way to have other people do the things that are not fun so you can do the things that you are good at and enjoy. And if there are things that you need to get better at in order to enjoy them, do that. Don't be a bloody fool about it. When it stops being fun, stop it. And the other, the and I think I think that's quite an important observation because I was young and I didn't know a lot when I was running that business. And I looked back on it and thought, if only I had known then what I know now, that you can hire an HR person and they'll take care of most of the people problems. And you can hire a salesperson and they'll do your sales for you. Admittedly, you have to have to make it work and have the right people. I could have run that business very differently and I would have been very happy being creative. So I know that now that, I, and I didn't know it then. The, the last uh, long, this is a deeply held, long reflected lesson. The last one is, and it, I need to remind myself of this every week. The people in a business, if you imagine you've got 70 people and you've got a bell curve of, there are some people who are extraordinarily productive, good, loyal, engaged, happy to be there and really your rock stars. And then a sort of rump of people, a group of people in the middle who are variously pretty good to very good, engaged, reasonably and happy, reasonably productive, reasonably worthwhile. And then there's this sort of tail end, this sort of fag end of people who are just difficult. They're not happy. They're not engaged. They're not good. They're not, there's problems there. And it, there's always a bell curve. You're 70 people. You're going to have three or four people right at that bad end. You're going to have three or four people right at the good. So the observation is this. Those bad people will take as much time and energy and effort and moral courage as you can, you give them. They will soak up all of your time if you let them. They will keep because they're difficult, they're demanding, they're creating problems, they're making noise, that you're having to go through performance improvement plans and disciplinary hearings. And, and of course, everyone's the hero of their own story. So they don't understand why you're upset about it. And they're shouting and grievances and problems. So those people, you limit, you minimize the amount of time you spend with them. You treat them fairly, you do the right thing. But when someone's not performing, you say you're not performing, you've got to get better. When someone's no good and they don't get better, you fire them. You just, you've got to be, not let them take over your life. And then you take the time that you're not spending with them and you spend it on bit on the top people to make sure they're happy but mostly on the people who are on the higher end of the bell curve. How do I make those people into rock stars? You can spend four days a week on the crappy people. You take three and a half days a week from that time and you spend it on the people who you can make better 
And when you make them better, they're good. And you minimize the time on the bad people. That's the number one lesson I learned. And because I'm confrontation avoidant, and because I'm certainly get sucked into the drama of annoying, bad, badly behaved people, I have to keep reminding myself of that lesson. But the best investment of time is investing in making good people great. Well said. So I should have that written on my screen here because I keep remembering that lesson and go, oh, why didn't I do that? We had talked to a little bit about this before, and I kind of want to explore this some more. You've undoubtedly had multiple great ideas, some of which you may not have acted upon. And I think the average person does the same thing. How have you captured your ideas going forward? Yes, it, uh, I have a notion page or group of pages of ideas of things that I would like to do, games I would like to make, projects I would like to run, books I'd like, all the backlog. And I'm very diligent about writing that stuff down and filing it away. And I think partly because it relieves me of the psychological pressure of having to remember it all, and partly because it relieves me of the guilt burden of I had that brilliant idea, but I didn't do anything with it because you have, it sounds like you have the same issue. I have 99 ideas that I don't act on and one idea that I do. And I don't want to carry around those 99 ideas. It's like, oh, that's the path not taken. But writing them down allows them to be exist in my life. They're sort of there. They're like seeds in a dark room. I take them out and they might germinate. I haven't killed them. I haven't lost them. They haven't gone anywhere, but they just haven't come to. And sometimes I go back and look at them and I go, actually, now the time has come for that idea. Not very often, but they're there. So I think this getting things done idea of get it out of your head and on paper is mission one. And mission two is get it out of the sight line of what you're working on right now, put it somewhere where it won't bother you, won't make you feel bad. These are the ideas that you're not acting on right now. So I have a very good triage flow for this. This all sounds terribly thought through. It's just a thing that I've built over the years. I use um, Notion for writing ideas down. I'm just constantly documenting things in Notion. But the main flow is managed inside an app called ClickUp. And it's a project management tool we use in the agency for running client work. So I have a list of things that I'm to do. And I have a backlog of things that I might do later. And I have another list, a tag of saying, I've asked this person to do this so I can monitor whether they've done it, kind of check on delegation. So I, have, I use that to sort of keep track of things. And what I do, because ClickUp's a little bit slow and frustrating sometimes, I use an app called Todoist, which is quick to load on my iPhone and quick to load on my computer. And I just, I, this idea occurs to me, to ask so-and-so to do such and such. Go and look at this, read this book. Somebody will tell me some a podcast I should listen. I just I write it down, get it out of my brain as quickly as possible into Todoist. And then I use Zapier. It takes the tasks from Todoist and it puts them into the right place depending on where I put them into Doist, into ClickUp, and then they're there for me to review. So nothing ever gets lost, but I triage, I capture quickly so it's out of my brain, and I log them and track them and triage them in, in, in ClickUp. And that process works pretty well. 
I have to be pretty ruthless about my to-do list because typically it runs to 40 to 60 things at any one time. And no, no, nobody's got the time to do that many. So I have to, I have to constantly comb out things and delegate them or delay them or don't do them or archive them. And I hate information loss. I hate things that existed not existing. I just have this backlog and I just put things into the backlog and they're there. And then the last piece of all of this puzzle for me and my, my, my process is every Christmas holiday when nobody is phoning me and I've got no meetings, I go to that backlog and I just go down that list and I, any of these I'm going to do, I'm going to read that article. I'm going to read, look at that thing. I'm going to check out that app. I'm going to click. And anything I want to keep just gets pushed down into the icebox. So it's really long-term storage, but not deleted. And I, that, that's a sort of strangely satisfying end of year ritual for me. And there's usually two, 300 things in the backlog that I go through and it takes me a day or so. So nothing gets lost. It all gets triaged out. But oh, okay. the, the funny thing is I'm telling you all this story and I'm remembering that in my life, I've had various versions of this same flow. When I was at school, I used to write it in a notebook and cross things out and move them to do. And then I was using Microsoft Schedule Plus, and then I was using Outlook, and then I was. But the same sort of capture, triage, archive, review has always been there. Okay, so, I understand. I really think that not only do these ideas, these thoughts that if. They have weight and they take up mental capacity. We're not talking about getting rid of them. We're talking about putting them away for a little bit. Okay. Yeah. And there's that sort of nagging anxiety that if I don't write it down and capture it next week, I'll really need that information. And it will have, I'm using the technology actually as an extension of my brain. That, <laughs> Uh, and it's very, actually this is an interesting this is a new thought that's occurring to me so thank you because i'm interested in this area i have a colleague who is autistic and one of the sim uh, one of the symptoms of this is she has almost no conventional memory for things she's got a huge memory palace for like information but so she she literally has this notebook, physical notebook with tabs and post-its and colors and things that she and she has completely outsourced a part of a memory function to whatever this month's notebook is. And it was fascinating when I first met her to see how she was doing that and when she was talking about that. And I, I sort of so related and connected with it. I don't do that thing, but there's something about outsourcing part of your memory and yourself and your identity you, you don't want to lose it it's important but it's not urgent i think it really frees you up to have other ideas and to not have that nagging feeling of am i going to deal with this mm. am i going to forget it and if i forget it i'll know i forgot it but i won't know what it was <laughs> you forgot yes exactly that yes i won't know what i forgot yes so and occasionally and i, I, I my ex-wife was, among other things, a playwright and she used to write books about theatre. And she used to, her practice was to what she called morning pages. So she'd just write random nonsense on and just whatever was stream of consciousness onto pages for until she'd filled up four pages. And there was something about that allowed some other creativity, got it out of the way, and then some other thing came out that was the thing she was actually writing. I can't do that. I think I bring a bit too much self-editing and structure to my writing, but 
if you can clean out, if you can get the, this, the random noise out of your head and capture it without guilt or anxiety, it makes space for something more constructive potentially to appear. And I think it has the same role for geeky ideation as my ex-wife's morning pages. Well, I had never really considered the fact that both of us being in an IT background, that data loss is unacceptable. That's the one thing that you don't want to do. I myself have these folders that are backed up re redundantly, and I've got backups of the backups in various different locations. It's really quite ridiculous. Yes. Yes. I can't understand how, I can't understand how people wouldn't want to do that. Yeah. And then we've got the colleagues, friends, family who just like, they forget things and stuff, and it's not really, they somehow seem to survive. They manage to live quite happily and burble through life. So it is just our idiosyncrasy. There's not, it's not the right way of living, but you have to cope with what you're given, right? I don't know whether we were both, both born that way or if it was indoctrinated into us, but yeah, it is what it is. Well, the <laughs> first time you create some artifact, some digital artifact, and then it gets lost, it it's a searing memory. I, for example, so with the computer games company that I used to run, I sold it in 2000 and sadly it closed two and a half years later, nothing to do with me, but inside that organization were all the game design documents and all the things that I had written and all the work that we had done and the code that we had created and all the, this just collective creative output of dozens and dozens of people for 10 plus years disappeared just up, gone it, that's that just hurts it hurts that my business that i had loved and created is no longer there but that's a small pain the big pain is all that data loss it just mm. really upsets me it really upsets me i never thought about that before in that way but yeah yeah. Oh, well, <laughs> never mind. We should learn to let go. Yeah. Have you ever considered recreating intelligent games? No, I never want to go back to the games business. I would, however, quite like to go back to game design. I quite, okay. the thing that I originally loved. And this is one of those things that was an idea that I had. And I was like, in the last month, and I just, I'm really, if I can find a day, I'm going to try and do it like a weekend day, because now there are game design tools that are much easier to use. You don't, if you, the moment you accept, you're not going to be writing a 3d interactive blockbuster, half a million, half a billion dollar game thing. And you use twine or something like that to build these and you're not worrying about graphics. It's going to be text with some choices and a few variables. So I have a few little game ideas that I would really like to do. And that I think that will survive the triage of ideas. It just it's just waiting for a little bit of time. And the part of what's attractive about that is if you do it in text, if I do it in a, like a little text adventure game with some variables, I'm a good writer, so I can write it. And I'm a I'm not a great programmer, but I'm a good enough programmer that I could code it. And using some one of these off-the-shelf tools means instead of it taking two weeks, I think I could get something minimum minimally viable and playable in a day or two. And that would just give me great pleasure. And that, but it's taken almost 20 years to want to do that. 
because for most of the time after I sold my games business, I couldn't even play games. Would you could classify yourself as an extrovert or an introvert? I'm definitely introverted. Okay. I sometimes think I'm not on the autistic spectrum, but I'm probably tiptoeing up to it. A lot of us in IT are. But I think I've got a pretty good sincerity simulator. And I'm pretty good at, I, I can't remember where I got that line from, but if I'm, and I'm, I, I've run companies all my life. So I'm perfectly comfortable standing up and being, I'm talking in public. In fact, I'm much better talking to a group of people or this kind of thing probably is why I enjoy working remotely because talking to a screen is a lot easier than talking to an individual. I quite like talking to people. I like meeting people. I don't know. It's, I'm, I, it, so this is a, a strange kind of, it's not extroversion. It's, I don't like small talk. I don't like parties. I don't like a lot of things that people who are sociable and extroverted like, but I like people and I'm interested in people and I enjoy, and I have no fear of talking. I think it was, I think it was cause I was very lucky when I was growing up, I had a very good education, very lots of, we had, you would call it junior ROTC, but officer training. And there's lots of leadership training and lots of outdoors and lots of communication and very loving family who were very outgoing. And then the Oxford University education system then was you sat in a room with, a, with an academic and you read them your essay and then you argued about it for an hour. So I sometimes say I learned how to BS at Oxford, BS on very limited information with someone who was an expert. It's perfect training for marketing. Mm -hmm. And IT as well. <laughs> IT as well. Yeah. yeah. The, well, the, the, the thing I learned about IT for IT and for a lot of other things actually was the bit that happened before I got in the room with the tutor, with the academic was cramming a lot of information in my head very quickly and picking out the bits that were interesting and then writing an essay. And that journey, lots of information, picking out the interesting bits, writing an essay to make an argument that is marketing. Well, well said at the core of it, what does articulate marketing do? We hold up a flattering mirror to our clients and help them understand who they are, who they sell to, what they sell, why people buy it, who buys it. And then we help them optimize all of those things. We help them communicate their message, their tone of voice, their positioning, their branding, their website, their marketing communication, their thought leadership, their blogging, their website content, their website to convey that message, to put their best foot forward, to stand out from the crowd. So yeah, we help people differentiate, we help B2B tech companies differentiate themselves and communicate with potential customers. That's another okay. way of putting it. Yeah. I noticed that you talked about a differentiation engine. How do you help them to establish one? Interesting question. This is an area of deep active investigation right now. I, th I think fundamentally you have to do what I would call business or industrial anthropology and go pay lots of attention to customers, right? What problems are they trying to solve? What pains do they have? What issues are they dealing with? What ambitions do they have? What is, where do they go for advice? What information do they trust? What is it? What are their jobs to be done to use that idea? And then you take all the stuff that you know about your business, your products, your services, and you translate it so that they, you're talking to your potential customers about their issues in their language on your terms. And that sort of 
investigation, diagnosis, translation, and then messaging and communication. It's quite hard for business owners to do for themselves because they're trapped in the confines of their own life experience and whatever it was that got the business started and whatever it was that made the business initially successful. And they find it quite hard to take all of those steps. So what we're trying to do with the Difference Engine is find the thing that makes them interesting, uniquely valuable to their potential customers and communicate that. How you actually communicate it, it can be word, it can be podcasts, it can be videos, it can be website, it can be branding, it can be design, it can be content, it can be thought leadership. There's lots of ways of positioning but it's got to start with the understanding. It's got to understand with who are we selling to and what are we selling and why are they buying it? I believe you've got a webinar coming up or it may have already passed. It was about the power of expertise in marketing. <laughs> yes. Thank you for looking that up. And it's it's happened, but the recording is available on articulatemarketing.com. Um, the, there are a number of failure modes, and I've talked about one, Failure modes of business owner managers in the IT and tech space, and probably in other businesses too, but these are the ones we talk to. One, one is that inability to see the world from their customer's perspective and talk to their customers about the customer's issues. That's very common. Another one is to fixate on what the competitors are doing. Another one is to be, be resistant to opinions to taking a position on things that we call it the rounded pebble problem, the man in the mirror. There's a whole load of failure modes and fallacies, right? And the problem that we face as a marketing agency is we understand those. We know how to solve those. We are able to take people on a journey and make that better. We are experts in marketing, but the people we sell to uh, 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 generally are owner managers or business managers, they, they, and they, they are experts in their business, they're experts in their field, but they assume that what got them where they are is going to get them where they need to get to. And the expertise they have in their field also means that they're experts in marketing. So they tend to self-diagnose and they tend to self-prescribe and they think that they're right because, and also when I say this myself as an owner manager, people tend to agree with them because they're the boss. Right. right. So they've got a certain privilege and authority about it. So they go, well, I think we should do uh, advertising on Google. Everyone's, yeah, that's a great idea, boss. Yes, let's definitely do that. And we might be coming along and go, that's a completely stupid idea until you figured out your value proposition and who's going to buy it. Because you could spend tens of thousands of pounds advertising to people on Google who are never going to buy your product. So the whole point about that pod, that webinar was there are different kinds of expertise and the, the wise management wise leadership is knowing your limitations knowing where you don't have expertise trying to fill that gap learn but also go find experts who can help you is there anything i have not asked that you'd like to go over <laughs> we talked a little bit in the pre-interview about note capture and i think it might be fun just to have a little bit of a compare notes about what apps you can use for that. And I've mentioned Notion. I've also been a fan of OneNote. What do you use? Right now I am using, I'm experimenting with an app called Nebo. And unlike yourself, I've got a, three different ecosystems that I play in. I've got Windows, I've got Android, and I've also got the Apple iOS. So it's not quite as seamless for me to take a note 
and have it appear in all three devices. But I'm experimenting with that. Well, you've got, from where I sit, you've got two fundamental choices, right? It's number one, Microsoft OneNote sits on all of those platforms. Right. Number two, come over to the dark side, get rid of all <laughs> that Android Windows stuff, just buy Apple. So you're Apple end-to-end, life's just, yes, brainwashed yeah. all Apple. But it, it does yeah. help if you're all on one ecosystem. A hundred percent agree. Unfortunately, I've got to support Windows for work. So that that, that pretty much takes care of that. Yeah. I could switch from I could switch from Android to iOS without a problem. If I had my own business, I would strongly look at the iOS operating system and, and replace my PC. It's interesting though, isn't it? People are born one way or the other. I think we give people a choice of Apple or PC and it pretty much splits 50-50 and it splits very on the exact cliche lines you'd expect. The designers and the coders tend to want Mac and more generalist marketers and writers tend to want Windows. There's some exceptions in both directions, but generally Apple's done a pretty good job of staking out that creative mentality that's our audience and positioning it there as why people why would people would think that you can, all the apps you use on a p on a mac you can get on a pc all that adobe stuff is on pcs but that's marketing for you that's positioning for you i can't say they've absorbed linux but they're based on linux so now that appeals more to some of the creative people as well and myself occasionally there is, there is that, I think the Linux or the Unix probably more accurately at the heart of S10 was, gives it a certain credibility to developers, I think. But I, I, Microsoft's embraced open source. I think Microsoft's a very different company than it was in the days of Steve Jobs. I yeah, their, their model is now largely a subscription model. So. Yeah, okay. that's, and that, that's also interesting, isn't it? It's just you don't go and buy a box of software anymore. You buy a subscription for something. You buy a subscription for your TV. You buy a subscription for your games. You buy a subscription for your computer. The next thing that's got to happen, I think, is you pay money to a company and they you they just give you a computer and it's got all the software on it and all the licensing and all the security and all the IT support and you pay £50 a month and that's, that's all everything you need. And then every two years, they just upgrade you. And if you have a problem with it or you drop it, they just send another one out by FedEx. I'm really surprised that nobody has done this. Everything you need for one price, computing, it's always unbundled. It's always, you've got to buy something from this person and something from that person. So that's the next step, I think. Yeah. I know that both the Microsoft and Apple offer computing in the cloud where you can use their desktop but you still have to be able to get to the cloud to use it. I think what you just described would be the ultimate thin client. Well, yeah, thin client or why not? Why not? I've, uh, if you were a company, you would get a Microsoft Surface laptop and it would have a Microsoft 365 subscription and it would have an antivirus subscription and it would have an IT support contract mm-hmm. and it would have the ad or whatever it is. And you, it's not necessarily a thin client, but it's just corporate IT computing with a device and all the software and all the support mm-hmm. for a fixed monthly price. And, yeah. and that's effectively what happens in big companies. They have somebody like you with an IT department and there's some support and they're buying all this and you're aggregating all of this together. But I run a company with 20 people with 18 of from across the UK and two in continental Europe. What I want to do is just go to a website and go, send new computer to my new hire. Here's their address. Click. 
I get the whole thing, one price, one contract, one website, bish, bash, bosh, and I don't have to think about it. But actually, for me, I have to aggregate. I have to buy the computer from one co one company. I have to buy IT support from another. Well, I don't. I do it myself. I have to go to Microsoft and sign up for that thing. I have to. Yeah. Maybe that should be the next big company. Maybe. So that, I'm going to put that on my list, triage it, and then by the weekend I'll have forgotten about it and decide it's not a good idea and it'll go on to the backlog. Anyway. Let's get ready to wrap this up. Is there a book that you currently recommend for to enable people in their business to either start it or to move it to the next level? I know we talked about rules of the game. But, yeah. yeah, that's a pretty tangential book for business advice. It's really interesting about leadership, but it's pretty tangential. What have I read recently about a business book? I'm always a bit skeptical and wary of business books, but I read Traction recently, which is about the entrepreneurial operating system. And there's some useful gems of wisdom in there. I don't ask me who it's written by, but somebody, you know, caught maybe. And... I think that would be, as a business book, that would be interesting. Can I make a completely random book recommendation? Of because course. We've been talking, nerding out a bit and geeking out a bit, and there's a, a, a lovely, a really good sci-fi author that I like called Becky Chambers, and she's written just all kinds of... And that, that I would call them very gentle sci-fi. There's no big space battles. It's very human. And there's one called, I think it's called Psalm for the Wild Built, which doesn't okay. sound like a very... Yeah, A Psalm for the Wild Built by Becky Chambers. And it's just the most delightful story. And it's about a robot and a monk and just nothing much happens, but it's very profound and very gentle and soft. So when you've got one of these days where you've got 14 hours of IT stuff to get into eight hours of working life and you want something that's soothing and fun, but still a bit geeky, Becky Chambers. I will definitely check that out. I would recommend Mike Resnick, although unfortunately he has such a huge backlog of books. Purgatory is one that uh, it's about the colonization of another planet and how that planet then rises up and where they go after that. I'm doing a horrible job of paraphrasing it. <laughs> I will, I'll go look that up. I do like a good sci-fi book. I like a good novel. I, 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 need, I need something that's gripping and page turning to get me away from my obsession about the Victorian Navy. So I keep reading books about that at the moment, which I, fascinates me, but it's getting a little bit obsessive. <laughs> and on that bombshell, I think probably I should shut up and go and have my dinner. <laughs> well, sir, what's the best way for somebody to contact you or to check you out? So I am blogging with my colleagues about marketing at articulatemarketing.com. The contact form there comes to my desk. So if you fill that in, say hi, I'd love to hear from you. I blog about my personal stuff, leadership management, the kinds of things we've been talking about, a bit of military history, a bit of Lego, a bit of computer games at geekboss.com. And then there's a sort of rather idiosyncratic blog about wine at vincarta.com. All of these sites have contact forms. All of those contact forms come through to me. So whether you're into wine or management leadership with a geeky twist or marketing, I've got something for you. Love to hear from you. Okay. Lastly, what's the number one piece of advice that you can give for our listeners? You might not agree. Check out Notion. 
as an Lookout app. Notion. It is. It has been transformational for me and my business the last year. All right, sir. That's a wrap. Thank you, Matthew, for being a guest on Entrepreneurs Over 40. It's been my very great pleasure, Greg. Thank you for having me. Check out the newly redesigned Entrepreneurs Over 40 website at www.entrepreneursover40.com. While you're there, sign up to get updates from us. Also, don't forget to subscribe in your favorite podcast app so that you don't miss any other episodes. Thank you for listening to Entrepreneurs Over 40. Check us out at entrepreneursover40.com. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or your favorite podcast directory.